1: Hello, once again, sports fans, and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'm grateful to have you on taking time out of your busy day or evening or night or whenever you're listening to us to give us a quick listen. And just a reminder for everyone out there, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. Now, two teams remain. The Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs are the last two standing and will face off on February the 12th in Glendale, Arizona in Super Bowl LVII or for everybody out there who doesn't use Roman numerals, 57. Now, okay, just for asking for a friend, is it time to move away from the Roman numerals? I mean, we're up in the 50s now. But anyway, in this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, we will go back to the times when the Eagles and the Chiefs advanced to the Super Bowl each for the first time. That's this episode's main event. Now, in keeping with the conference championship theme and our top five portion of the show, sponsored by Home Field Apparel, I'll count down my five most memorable conference championship games. All are great games. Yet in this countdown, I will explain why they are so memorable to me. And finally, in our last segment, I'll be sending a heartfelt, solemn shout-out to a man who I consider one of my broadcasting idols. I, along with a lot of college basketball fans, considered him the John Madden of college basketball. Billy Packer, who to me is the voice of the Final Four, passed away a few days ago. So in this episode, we're going to talk about his career and how it impacted a young basketball fan and influenced a future radio broadcaster who felt like it was not the NCAA tournament until I heard his voice. So sit back, pump up the volume, because you're going down sports memory lane with the top-down on Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network.
2: The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Fran Tarkenton and Red Grange, But, have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform to get podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. And then there were two, the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs are going to square off on February the 12th in Glendale, Arizona at State Farm Stadium for Super Bowl 57. The Chiefs are in the Super Bowl for the third time in four years and looking to capture the franchise's third Super Bowl title, while the Eagles are looking for their second Lombardi trophy after winning it all in 2007, after beating the Patriots 41-33 in an epic Super Bowl in Minneapolis. The Chiefs and the Eagles have had a very successful last few seasons and is culminating in this 57th edition of Super Bowl Sunday. Now, all together, both have combined to play in eight Super Bowls with the Chiefs winning two and the Eagles won their lone one five years ago. And the Chiefs were the representatives of the American Football League in the very first Super Bowl played on January the 15th, 1967 at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Now, to get there, the Chiefs had to beat two-time defending AFL champion Buffalo Bills. Now, even though the Chiefs had a record of 12-2-1, heading into that game, the 1966 AFL title game was played at Buffalo's War Memorial Stadium, also known as the Rock Pile. In my book, the coolest nickname to a stadium ever, the Rock Pile. Now, Buffalo was still a potent team, led by quarterback Jack Kemp, and a crushing defense led by the likes of Mike Stratton, George Sames, and Harry Jacobs. On the other side of the ball was the Kansas City Chiefs, who was in the AFL title game for the first time since leaving Dallas and becoming the Kansas City Chiefs in 1963. In December of '62, the then-Dallas Texans defeated the Houston Oilers in double overtime to win their only AFL title to that point. The Chiefs were led by future Hall of Fame quarterback Len Dawson, and running back Mike Garrett, and receivers Otis Taylor and Chris Burford. The game was played on January 1, 1967 on a cold, dreary, overcast day in upstate New York. The Chiefs struck first with a 29-yard touchdown pass from Dawson to tight end Fred Albanis to take an early 7-0 lead. Now The Bills would strike back when their first possession, as Kemp would find Elbert Dubinion on a 61-yard touchdown connection to tie the score at 7 apiece. As it turned out, it would be the only touchdown the Bills would score that afternoon. The Chiefs would score twice more in the second quarter, once on an Otis Taylor 29-yard reception from Dawson, and a Mike Mercer 22-yard field goal to make the score 17-7 heading into intermission. After a scoreless third quarter, the Chiefs would put the game would put the game out of reach. Taking Mike take, taking Mike Garrett, running back Mike Garrett would score a pair of rushing touchdowns, including one of the greatest touchdown runs in AFL history as he took the sweep to the left, saw nothing, then ran across the field to the right, breaking several tackles as he was going to the opposite end, and then outran the Bills defenders for an 18-yard touchdown run to end the scoring as the Chiefs would hit the Super Bowl one, beating Buffalo 31-7. Now, ultimately, though, the Chiefs would lose to Vince Lombardi and MVP Bart Starr 35-10 in the inaugural Super Bowl. Now, as for the Eagles, they had to wait a little longer for their appearance in the big game. After years of last place finishes and fan ridicule, the Eagles led by coach Dick Vermeil and quarterback Ron Jaworski were poised to reach their first ever Super Bowl on January 11, 1981, at the infamous Veterans Stadium. Yet standing in the way of the Eagles from reaching their promised land would, would be their longtime hated rival, the Dallas Cowboys. Now, the Cowboys was America's team, as everybody knows back then, and was looking to return to the Super Bowl behind quarterback Danny White, who was the heir apparent to Roger Staubach. Now, Dallas had missed the Super Bowl the previous year, losing to the Rams in the divisional round at home. Now, the Eagles had been a, somewhat of a surprise, and along with Kirk, Coach Vermeule and Jaws, the Eagles had all pro receivers Harold Carmichael and a punishing defense. Yet the afternoon belonged to a running back from Abilene Christian named Wilbert Montgomery, who set the pace early in the game and was described by CBS as Pat Summerall and Tom Brookshire in a raucous veteran stadium.
2: Wilbert Montgomery now is the defense and it's Montgomery with a ball. And with the room to go, Montgomery might go. Wilbert Montgomery,
1: touchdown Philadelphia. yards by Montgomery straight ahead
0: that's his 12th touchdown of
2: the year out of Abilene Christian you might recall Monday night a year ago it was his play on short yardage the big one that actually broke the back of the Dallas Cowboys He he went outside of Ed Jones and Sizemore just took
1: Jones down two touchdowns last week against Minnesota even though Dallas would tie the game in the second quarter with a three-yard touchdown run by Tony Dorsett. And with the boisterous, wild Philadelphia crowd behind the Eagles and swirling winds in the vet, they would shut the Cowboys out in the second half. Two Tony Franklin field goals and a Leroy Harris nine-yard touchdown run sealed the game for the Eagles and punched their ticket to Super Bowl fifteen. Incredibly, the Philadelphia Eagles, who were just 4-10 three seasons earlier when Vermeer took over as head coach, had brought the city a brotherly love and NFC title. Yet, for the Eagles, it was not meant to be. A team with an even more of a Cinderella story, the Oakland Raiders and their Cinderella quarterback game MVP Jim Plunkett defeated the Eagles 27-10 in Super Bowl XV in New Orleans. So, there you have it. The two teams in this year's Super Bowl can trace their Super Bowls and their playoff success in the Super Bowl era to these pair of games which they punched their tickets to the big game for the first time ever. Now, coming up next on our show, since we're coming off of championship weekend in the NFL, we're going to be counting down the five most memorable championship games, at least for me, the, the, the best ones I've ever seen. And later, and the most memorable, I should say. And later on, we're going to be sending a shout-out to the late, great Billy Packard. To me, he was the voice of March Madness. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network.
2: At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row 1 Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice! In the Row 1 shop, You can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row 1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of Filmmusic.io.
1: Hello, folks, and welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports podcast, where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there, you can follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And right now, it is time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Now, Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our top five where we do every episode where we count down the five biggest historic moments in the world of sports that is celebrating anniversaries and is being brought to you by Home Field Apparel. This is my favorite time of year as the NFL is heading into the Super Bowl and college basketball season is in full swing. And before you know it, March Madness will be here. And the best way to show off your school spirit and fandom is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Home Field Apparel. Now, they have a wide range of styles for your favorite team with what I call old school note logos, not only to make you stand out in the crowd, but also show that you are a true fan. They have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more schools and more styles every day. On the website, you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen and get 20% off of your next purchase. So give home field apparel a try as you watch your team in the tournament and possibly pull off that major upset. That's Home Field Apparel where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful premium apparel, a must-have for your upcoming tournament for the upcoming tournament. Now, once again, home field apparel where they are fond of saying wear one for the team. Now, this week's top five countdown will be a little bit different. Now, in in this episode's top five, we're going to count down my five most memorable AFC and NFC championship games. And the Eagles and the Chiefs won their games to advance to Super Bowl 57 in Glendale. And so I will count down my all-time favorite top five conference title games. All of them had exciting finishes. Some were historic, but all of these were memorable. And I remember where I was and what I was doing and what I was feeling when they took place. And so without further delay, here is the This week's, this episode's Home Field Apparel Top 5. Number 5. The Fumble. The 1987 AFC Championship game between the Cleveland Browns and the Denver Broncos at Mile High. This game took place on January 17th, 1988 and it was a rematch between the Browns and the Broncos in the AFC Championship game, which took place the season before, and it was, of course, everybody remembers, the drive. It was this game of, obviously, and unfortunately, became famous for the Ernest Biner fumble. Now, Denver went up 28 to 10 in the third quarter, and yours truly was only 14 years old, so what does any 14-year-old do in a blowout like this? I grabbed my basketball, went outside and shoot basketball for a while. Little did I know that Cleveland would make an amazing comeback led by the aforementioned Ernest Biner. He scored two touchdowns in the third quarter including a 32-yard touchdown reception from quarterback Bernie Kozar. Kozar would pass again, would pass this time to Wester Slaughter to tie the game at 31-31. That was when I kind of walked into the house. When Webster Slaughter scored. And my grandfather, who was watching the game at the time, said, you are missing a great, great comeback. Because the Browns are back in this game. They've actually tied the game. They're like," And I just was just dumbfounded. Are you serious? He said, yes, I'm serious. And sure, sure enough, Dick Enberg and Merlin Olsen broadcasting the game for NBC was actually saying, yes, they've actually come back. Can you believe it? Those who went away they need to come back and so i came back like they said then elway did what john elway does he drove down drove the broncos down the field and threw a touchdown pass to sammy winder 20 yard strike to give the broncos the lead once again and of course that set the stage for of course ernest biner as he was going in the score with less than a minute to play Beiner fumbled the ball on the three-yard line and it was recovered by Jeremiah Castillo and the Broncos held on to a 38-33 win to return to the Super Bowl where they would take on the Washington Redskins in Super Bowl 22. Had Beiner not fumbled, that would have been his signature of his career because... He single-handedly brought, would have brought Cleveland back and we would be talking about Ernest Beiner and had that performance is one of the greatest postseason performances in NFL history. But as it turned out, it wasn't meant to be. And, I, and I, felt, I felt for him then when I was 14 and I still feel for him. Number four, the catch. The 1981 NFC Championship game between the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers. January tenth, 1982. Now, to be honest, I was a Cowboy fan until I reached the age of reason, which occurred about 10 minutes after this game ended. I was 9 years old and I was sitting in my parents' den watching the game wearing my Tony Hill jersey and holding on to my Dallas Cowboys helmet. Now, even though the Niners quarterback Joe Montana threw three interceptions for some reason, San Francisco was hanging around and actually had a 21-17 lead heading into the fourth quarter. Now, in the fourth, Dallas would score 10 points thanks to Rafael Septien field goal and a touchdown pass from Danny White to Doug Cosby. And of course, you know what happens next. Broadcasting the game for CBS was legendary Vince Gully and Hall of Fame coach Hank Stram see a pickup sometime on the right side possibly. Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. The Niners would take the lead on a ray worshing field goal, and the Cowboys had to just get in the field goal range. And they almost did as, they hit, as Danny White hit Drew Pearson on a long completion to get to midfield. And yet, it was not meant to be as the clock ran out on the Cowboys. Then the game ended. This nine-year-old kid sat there crying, yours truly, me was crying after a cowboys game threw my tony hill jersey into the corner of the den and i said quote i will never root for the cowboys ever again and i have actually kept that promise number three chargers reached super bowl Reach the super bowl 1994 afc championship game between the chargers and the steelers january 15th, 1995 I had since gotten rid of the Cowboys. It took me a little while, but then I eventually found the Chargers. Why? Because I just love them. You, I mean, I've always said that whenever you in, in fandom that you don't choose the team, the team chooses you. And I was chosen by the Chargers in my own mind. And I've loved their style. I love the high scoring. I love the offense. I love offense and but of course the Chargers have had very little success over the years but on this particular afternoon in 1995 they were in the AFC championship game and they had this unbelievable season with Bobby Ross as head coach and Stan Humphries at quarterback and they were playing in the first AFC their first AFC title game since the infamous freezer bowl in 1982 when it was 57 degrees below zero wind chill when they played the Bengals and lost this time, they were playing the Steelers in Pittsburgh, and it was, it was cold, but it wasn't nowhere near as cold as it was at Riverfront that afternoon. Now, this game, I was home from college and my friend and my friend Trevor Mitchell's house, watching the game with several other, but other buddies of mine. As it turned out, I was the only one rooting for the Chargers. I think I needed to get used to that. It featured a pair of great running games and a strong and strong physical defenses. The Chargers, of course, by, was led by the aforementioned Stan Humphreys from University of Louisiana at Lafayette. I mean, I'm sorry, not Lafayette. What am I talking about? I'm going to get shot for that. UL, La- UL Monroe. Sorry, Stan. UL Monroe, formerly Northeast Louisiana University. While that quarterback for the Steelers, it was Neil O'Donnell. And the Steelers were favorite and looked every bit like the favorite leading 13-3 at halftime, yet the Chargers came back. Humphreys tossed a pair of touchdown passes, once to Alfred Pupuno and another one to take the lead with Mark Say. However, the game came down to the defense. With a defense that featured Junior Seau, Leslie O'Neill, and unheralded linebacker Dennis Gibson, who was the one who deflected the Neil O'Donnell pass in the end zone that was intended for Barry Foster, which hit the uh, Three River Stadium turf, and with that incompletion, the Chargers held the Steelers out the end zone and without points, and now they were heading to Miami for Super Bowl 29, where they will ultimately lose to the 49ers which was one of the loneliest nights of my life. That will be coming up soon in another edition of this podcast, That Story. Number two, No Three-Peat. The 1990 NFC Championship game between New York Giants and the San Francisco 49ers. And the kick is good.
0: There will be no 3 The Giants win it
2: 15-13.
1: Of course, you know that is the unmistakable baritone voice of the late, great Pat Summerall along with the late, great John Madden broadcasting that NFC Championship game between the Giants and 49ers at Candlestick Park for CBS. It was played on January 20th, 1991, and that was the first time that those two had faced each other since they had played each other a couple months before on Monday Night Football which was one of the highest and mostly most anticipated Monday Night Football games ever where the Niners won 10-9. Now that year, I was a senior in high school, and I was rooting for the Giants because my Chargers were in the midst of the Dark Ages. And the first half was a field goal fest that saw both teams going into the locker room at the half tied at six. And now in the third quarter, the Niners scored the game's only touchdown when Joe Montana found John Taylor on a 61-yard touchdown pass. The game will be remembered for two things. One, of course, you've heard the Matt Bar field goal at the end of regulation. But the other thing was the vicious hit Joe Montana suffered at the hands of the Giants linebacker Leonard Marshall. As Barr hit the field goal and as time expired, the Giants were back in the Super Bowl for the second time in four seasons. They will go on to beat the Buffalo Bills 20 19 in an epic matchup in Tampa. And now, the number one most memorable moment for me in the conference championship game, conference championship game history 2009. The Saints going to the Super Bowl. Really? The 2009 NFC Championship game between the Saints and the Vikings. Now, it has been, what, 14 years. Is it been 14 years? Yeah, 14 years since the Saints had been in the Super Bowl, their only Super Bowl appearance. Wow, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. And not only that, guys, the Saints in the Super Bowl is something that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Growing up in Louisiana, this was a belief that Saints just winning a playoff game was a monumental achievement. But by 2009, heading into January of 2010, the Saints had not only won playoff games, but had home field advantage in the playoffs that year. Really? Now, the Saints would be at home in the Superdome when they would face a team that broke broke their hearts several times in the postseason. Both before then... And since, and that's the Minnesota Vikings. Now, if you grew up a sports fan in Louisiana like I did in the 1980s, you remember the beatdown the Vikings gave the Saints in their first ever playoff game, winning 44-10 in the Superdome on their way to the NFC title game where they eventually would lose to Washington. That 1987 team with... You know, Bobby A. Barrett quarterback, and you had Reuben Mays and Dalton Hilliard that's running backs, you had the Dome Patrol, defense, I mean, that team was just so stacked, but they had nothing on Minnesota that afternoon. And I was thinking, as i was watching this game with my wife, Nicole, who is a crazy Saints fan, by the way, we were wondering how the Saints would mess this up. But as it turned out, on the final drive of regulation, it would be the Vikings, more specifically, Brett Favre that would make the costly mistake. As he threw across his body and his pass intercepted by Tracy Porter. Tracy Porter, remember that name? Sending the game into overtime. And of course, in the overtime period, the Saints got the ball, drove down about 20, 30 yards down the field, set it up for Garrett Hartley. Who never would have, who now, after hitting that field goal, would never have to buy a meal in New Orleans ever again. His kick sailed through the uprights to give the Saints a 31-28 win in the the NFC Championship game and a berth for their first Super Bowl ever. Now, all these games were memorable. Yet, for me, they hold a very special place for me. This game here, the first thing I thought about was my grandpa who had passed away in 2002 and how excited he would have been whenever Garrett Hartley kicked that field goal to give the Saints the win over the Vikings and advanced Super Bowl 44 in um uh, in Miami against Indianapolis you know he would have been astounded and at the same time I he would have been over the moon for someone who had uh, who had attended the Saints very first playoff or Saints very first game in 1967 at Tulane Stadium when John Gilliam kicked the uh, When John Gilliam ran back the opening kickoff, 94 yards to open the game, to open the season, and open the franchise. He was, my grandfather was there. And he would have been totally astounded. And whenever I see that game on replay or see a picture or clips from that game, the first person I think of is my grandpa, who was a huge, huge Saints fan. And that will do it for this week's edition of the Home Field Apparel Top 5. And coming up next is this week's shout-out. And we're going to be sending a shout-out to one of my broadcasting idols. One who has come to define an entire month of the sports calendar year. To me, he was the voice of the Final Four. And we'll send a shout-out to this man, the late, great Billy Packer. That's right after this break.
2: We at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash sponsors page, you'll find Row 1, Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. All of these offer great discounts. Specifically at Row 1, you can save 15% at the Row 1 Gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 Gallery includes over 5200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes of wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 shop also has thousands of more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts and long sleeve shirts, phone cases and mugs, blankets and pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. With Royal Retros, they're the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from defunct leagues and other teams in those leagues. From Play Classic Games, it's sports simulation board games. Just use the code SHN for 10% off your first order. From Thrive Fantasy, It's a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to $100. And with Mega Seats, they're tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So check them out on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com sponsors page. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash sponsors. Soundtrack is provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io.
1: Hello and welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta and we're going to close things out on this episode with our shout out. And this shout out portion of the program We lost a college basketball analyst that I consider one of my idols. Billy Packer, the longtime color commentator of the Final Four for both NBC and CBS, passed away at the age of 82. He had broadcasted a total of 34 Final Fours, alongside some of the greatest play-by-play men of all time, namely Kurt Gowdy, namely Dick Enberg, Gary Bender, Brent Musburger, and most recently Jim Nance. Uh, He was born on February 25, 1940, in Wellsville, New York, and attended Wake Forest University from 1958 through 1962. Uh, At Wake Forest, he led the Demon Deacons to -to back-to-back ACC titles in 1961 and 1962, and was a key element to the Demon Deacons' appearance in the '62 Final Four. After graduating, he went into broadcasting first locally, then nationally, and he was on the sidelines for his first Final Four in 1975 in San Diego. The national championship game between UCLA and Louisville would be the first of 34 consecutive national championship games that that he would broadcast as a color analyst. Incidentally, his first national championship game as a broadcaster would be the final game of head coach John Wooden of UCLA, who led the Bruins to 10 national titles in 12 seasons. He was on the sidelines in Salt Lake City in 1979 when he... Dick Enberg, and Al McGuire broadcast still the highest-rated college basketball game in television history, when Michigan State, led by Magic Johnson, defeated Indiana State paced by the hick from French lick Larry Bird. He moved to CBS shortly after the network won the rights to broadcast the NCAA tournament in 1981, where he stayed until 2008. Perhaps his signature call came in March of '83. When the highly favored University of Houston Cougars led by Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and members of Five Slamma Jama took on Tournament Darlings North Carolina State Wolfpack led by head coach Jim Vivano in Albuquerque, New Mexico for the national championship. Now with time running out, the Cougars n- leading by one point and the Wolfpack was searching for one last shot. Here is Billy Packer along with play by play man Gary Bender on CBS. This is a really interesting strategy by Houston. They're aggressive now. Not staying back. Well, remember, they have a team in there for, to block anything that goes inside. Down to 14 seconds. Oh, almost stolen by Drexler. They, Boy, is he good at they've that. Got a drive to the basket. It's
2: down to seven seconds. You can see the time. Wittenberg. Oh, that's a long.
1: Packer was a fixture on CBS college basketball coverage until he was replaced by Clark Kellogg for the NCAA tournament and the Final Four in 2008. He was a straight shooter as well as a consummate professional. To me, you could forget Bill Raftery, who I love. You could forget Vital. Billy Packer was the voice of the Final Four. He will definitely be missed. And thank you guys for listening. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get new episodes whenever they're released. And you can check us out on Twitter at historically sp2, where you get your where you could get your daily dose of sports history. And you could also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. Please, what are you waiting for? And also tell your family, tell your neighbor, tell a friend. Even tell a passerby on the street about us. I would really appreciate it. And until next time, sports fans, I'll talk to you soon. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, saying so long.